0: This episode of Radio Atlantic is brought to you by Microsoft Copilot for Security. In the age of AI, we're empowering security teams to better detect and better defend cyber threats. Stay tuned to find out how.
1: As a young man, he tried on a number of identities. Anti-racist hippie in suburban Ohio, anti-capitalist hunter-gatherer in the Philippines. But the identity that made Andrew Anglin notorious on the internet? Neo-Nazi. Is a new generation of dangerous trolls on the rise? Or are they just now on our radar? This is Radio Atlantic. Hi, I'm Matt Thompson, executive editor of The Atlantic. Over there in New York, we have my esteemed co host, Jeffrey Goldberg. Hi, Jeff. Hi, Matt. This week, we're sitting down with two journalists who've covered what seems to be a rising tide of extremist voices in the U.S. Here in D.C., we've got Rosie Gray, staff writer and White House reporter for The Atlantic, who's done a significant amount of reporting on the so-called alt-right. Hello, Rosie. Hello. And here with us also this week, we have the reporter Luke O'Brien, who wrote the cover story in the December 2017 issue of The Atlantic titled The Making of an American Nazi. Hello, Luke. Hi. Thank you for joining us, both of you. Luke, your story walks us through the life of a man named Andrew Anglin who went from being a teenage vegan anti-racist hippie in Columbus, Ohio to founding the world's biggest neo-Nazi website, the Daily Stormer. Now, start us off, Luke, by telling us how you first
2: came to hear about Andrew Anglin. I actually first learned about Andrew Anglin in the summer of 2015. uh, I think it was about two weeks after Donald Trump declared his candidacy for president and Andrew Englund jumped right on board and endorsed him and many other neo-Nazis followed suit. That's how I found out about him. Why did he interest you? <laughs> well, I I was intrigued by him from that point, actually, because I noticed how many white nationalists were throwing their support behind Donald Trump. It was not getting the appropriate amount of coverage in the mainstream media at the time. And I suspected that something strange was going on out there in the political hinterlands. And I started tracking it uh, from then on.
1: Yeah. Tell us what was the turning point? What happened in the life of this guy, as best as you could detect,
2: that transformed him into a Nazi? If I had to point to one thing, it would be rejection. Rejection romantically, uh, rejection from the job market, and a feeling of societal rejection as well, which then curdles into a form of anger that we're all trying to understand. But you know,
3: I mean, uh I can't speak for Matt, but I've experienced rejection in my life and I didn't become a Nazi. I mean, so what's the what's the missing Matt, you've never been rejected by anything. That's is that fair? (laughs) That is not fair. That is not fair. I also rejection. What is the what is the what's the missing piece though? Because a lot of people go through setbacks and they don't become lunatics. What what do you think what what do you think is
2: the missing piece? Well, I do think it is a, also a lack of of critical thinking skills, as I mentioned in the piece. I a lot of these guys need an outlet for this this feeling of um, of rejection, and they turn to uh, what I've been calling Trutherville. Uh, this this is you know they all have different routes to neo Nazism, but I've found that this is a very common one among members of the alt right, this younger generation of white nationalists, because. They can find these echo chambers online where they sink into their confirmation bias, and it just it, 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 there's almost a prefabricated ideology that they can uh, latch onto and, and, and be able to focus their, their feelings of anger.
4: One thing that I would add uh, in terms of why a lot of these young men turn to this kind of ideology is that it's not only you know, a sense of alienation or rejection, but also that this gives them a way to stand out. And be sort of special and get attention. You know, if you don't have a lot going on in your life and you feel like you're just sort of normal and boring and sort of disaffected, you know, becoming an alt-right troll is a way to sort of feel like you're doing something punk and edgy and special.
1: Yeah. Normal and boring and sort of disaffected is a pretty good description of the character of Andrew England as he comes across in, in your story, Luke. But why was it that so many people followed him? How did he come to command a troll
2: army? I, I think that actually gets at the point Rosie was making there. It's uh, these guys are seeking uh, to find some form of significance in society. It's uh, powerless people searching out power in whatever fashion they they can find it. And uh, I also think there's a, a real tribal aspect to this. These are young guys who are finding themselves online and finding each other online, and they may not live in proximity to each other but the internet has enabled them to connect and create this sense of community they're searching for that too and there's a power that comes from being part of a tribal group being part of a gang really rosie how closely did andrew
1: england's origin story track with some of the other figures that you've observed in this orbit
4: you know i think that elements of it are 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 pretty common you know sort of relatively normal upbringing, nothing, you know, particularly remarkable really about his childhood. I think what's one thing that was really fascinating in Luke's story that I didn't know about Andrew Anglin was the fact that as a teenager, he was this sort of, you know, vegan leftist, you know, anti-fascist type. That was really useful information to know because it sort of shed light on his uh, ability and sort of propensity for latching himself onto causes. Yeah. Um, but, you know, the, obviously the story gets much weirder after that when there's this interlude in the Philippines and, you know, there's some suggestion that he spent a lot of time in Russia. And, and so that stuff, I mean, that seems sort of singular to him.
1: Eng- England does a fair amount of soul searching. Yeah.
2: Yes. If, if you want to call it that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So uh, he graduated from high school and he wound up eventually in the Philippines where he spent quite a bit of time, several years, particularly in southern philippines in mindanao anglin was drawn to kind of the lawlessness of of the region and just you know living outside his 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 comfort zone yeah he was gonna become like a hunter gatherer for a minute well yeah the reason why he actually went to the philippines is because he had this awakening when he was in columbus that the world was a mess in america he was very anti-capitalist he did not like the american system And he decided that the only way forward for him, and really for humanity, if they would just listen to him, is to return to hunter-gatherer lifestyle. So he he went off in search of a tribe that he could become part of, an actual tribe. And he ended up finding one in the Philippines, in Mindanao. Uh, the Tiboli, uh, initially, that's the tribe that he spent some time with. He had essentially a, a white savior complex he was going to go and live with this group of people that had been in this area for thousands of years and teach them how to grow crops and things things do not work out well for him as you might imagine wow at the time he was also very into some of these delusional conspiracy theories the moon landing was a hoax among others and he was already a big fan of Alex Jones at that point, and I, I think that that is a you know a key inflection point in his journey. Alex Jones, probably America's premier conspiracy theorist, uh, the guy who's on Info Wars, and also a, a big fan of Donald Trump. Trump also is a fan of Jones, uh, and he has been I, I think a waypoint to white nationalism or to at least that that process of radicalization and and it, the gateway is into that conspiracy theory land. And that's where Andrew Anglin went after high school and spent years there years hanging out on very strange sites in weird forms with a lot of crazy types, all talking amongst themselves. And eventually he built his own site dedicated to this. It was essentially a conspiracy theory aggregation site uh, where he was, still trying at that point i think to pursue i guess what you could call a traditional writing career he fancied himself a writer going all the way back to high school hunter thompson was his idol and i think he was still on a track where he could ha- he could have become part of of sort of the normal mainstream but he spent too long you know in these echo chambers and and that's and he went on from there yeah
3: Luke, could you, um, uh, I mean, as much as I'd like to blame the internet for everything wrong in the <laughs> world, uh, fascism predates the internet. Uh, how much do you ascribe Andrew Anglin's success, quote unquote, to the internet? And how much how much of
2: his uh, radicalization process do you ascribe to the internet? I would say quite a bit. Uh, you're absolutely right. Fascism does predate the internet. It predates one could even argue uh, nazi germany it goes back to mussolini but there are sort of fascist tendencies in american culture that that predate even world war ii and uh, you know nativism and nationalism people don't want to acknowledge it that's why you hear so many um especially conservative voices who want to describe these guys as fringe look away if you ignore them they'll go away and that may have been true to some extent uh, 20, 30, 40 years ago when you had some clansmen gathering to burn a, cl- a cross in a small town and they're there for an hour and then they go on their way. But what makes it different now is that these the platforms that these guys have available to them and you know, I don't want to go too far in this comparison, but, but it is similar to an ISIS style model online where if you have – some inclination toward fascism or racism misogyny hate whatever it might be uh it's very easy to find you know your your place online now and like-minded people and and feel like you're part of a growing movement
4: another thing that's you know specific to the alt right really is that uh, and and kind of the reason that they've been able to become relatively popular is because the sort of language and culture of the alt right is so based off of internet meme culture and 4chan culture and and really in this sort of knowing kind of you know is it ironic or is it not you know vibe that they that they put out and i think that that's kind of why they've been able to edge a little bit closer to the mainstream and that's that's because of the internet
1: Luke, you start your story with a woman named Tanya Gersh, and her story is in some ways an illustration of what happens when these threats that can seem abstract or just on the internet come real. Tell us what Tanya Gersh
2: went through. Well, she may have been subjected to the worst troll storm that Anglin has whipped up. And by that, I mean he had at his command dozens if not hundreds of, of followers online, people who would visit his site, who would hang out in his comments section, and uh he 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 them on people for whatever reason. It could just be as simple as what happened to Tanya Gersh. She's Jewish and she got into a dispute with the mother of another white nationalist, Richard Spencer. And yeah, so Anglin put his trolls on her and you're talking about Waking up in the middle of the night and having a a Nazi on the other line cursing at you, threatening you. And imagine this 100-fold, 200-fold emails, texts. You know, Tanya Gersh is in trauma therapy because of this. There are very real-world effects that happen when uh, people are harassed like this. What is the threat of violence from this – from – Andrew Anglin types? I think it's the lone wolf threat. Anglin is very careful not to cross what we call the, the Brandenburg threshold, which refers to this refers to a, a Supreme Court decision about how far you can go with your speech in uh, terms of making threats or inciting violent activity. And he knows exactly where that limit is. And he coaches his trolls on that as well. So they're very careful in what they say online But that doesn't change the fact that several of his readers have actually murdered people. Now, that's not something Anglin orchestrates, but he's attracting a a violent crowd to his site and he is advocating for violence in general.
3: Remind us very quickly of those cases.
2: Yeah. I mean, Dylan Roof – walked into a church in Charleston and massacred uh, several people. He was a reader of the Daily Stormer and a commenter uh, on the Daily Stormer. Parts of his manifesto have been found in the comments section of the Daily Stormer verbatim under one poster's name. A week before Brexit, Labour MP Joe Cox was murdered in the UK by a suspected Daily Stormer reader. There's James Jackson, and that is also one that got a lot of attention. That happened not too long ago where a white man went to New York with a sword and stabbed a black homeless man to death and then was interviewed in jail and said that he named one ideological influence on him and it was the Daily Stormer. Hmm. Um, Luke, where is Andrew England now? Well, nobody actually knows. And it's it's quite a uh, a hunt going on for him because he's been sued by Tanya Gersh uh, and the SPLC. He's also been sued by a Muslim American comedian. uh, Anglin forged tweets linking this guy to ISIS or terrorism or something. So that guy has now sued Anglin for libel, I believe. And They have teams of process servers that are are looking for him, Uh, mainly in Columbus, but I think they've extended the search elsewhere. And he is holed up. He's holed up somewhere.
1: Stick with us. In a moment, we're going to turn from Andrew
0: England to the movements that he's a part of. We're entering a new era of security. Cyber threats are escalating rapidly. And while tech alone can't eliminate every threat, it can empower security teams to quickly respond to incidents at scale. Microsoft is transforming the industry by innovating to arm teams with the resources necessary to outpace adversaries and operate at machine speed. Microsoft Copilot for Security, powered by generative AI, works alongside defenders. Stay tuned to learn more about Copilot's capabilities after the episode.
1: broaden out and talk about the alt-right more generally. And Rosie, you've been reporting on this movement that we have come to call the alt-right um, for some time now. Rosie, how would you define this landscape that we call the quote-unquote alt-right?
4: Well, it, that's actually a really tricky question because um, you know, do you use that term to describe every neo-Nazi? No. There are lots that are not alt-right or don't consider themselves alt-right. I mean, I would say that the alt-right is this sort of newer and more, you know, internet-based white nationalist movement that is, you know, based a lot on, like I had said earlier, sort of 4chan culture, meme culture, and uses that kind of language to express itself a lot of the time.
1: Yeah. What are some of the schisms in this broad patchwork of of movements that we're talking about.
4: Well, there's tons and a lot of the leaders of these various factions, you know, feud with each other and hate each other and that kind of thing. But um, you know, when I started uh reporting about the All Right in late 2015, it was it was I guess a little bit more cohesive than it is now and seemed to have a little bit more momentum actually in a way than it does now. Richard Spencer, <laughs> one of the leaders of the All Right and who has claimed credit for even coining the term, you know he represents this sort of effort to intellectualize the alt right and kind of present it as almost like a dry, sort of theoretical kind of affair. Uh, and he, you know, he runs a very innocently named think tank called the National Policy Institute. So, yeah. um, but you know, over the past year or so, we've seen the rise in we've seen you know some some figures in in this uh, in this far right world. Start to distance themselves from him and from his allies, and they've started calling themselves new right. And they've sort of rejected some of the most overtly racist or anti-Semitic kind of tenets of the movement. And so already, I think we're seeing sort of um a factionalization and sort of atomization of this whole thing.
1: How much influence do these folks have? Uh, and how much uh, attention do you think that they merit?
4: You know, this is something that I, as a journalist who who has written and writes about them, This is something that I struggle with because you don't want to give needless attention to, you know, to fringe characters who at the end of the day don't really matter. At the same time, I do think that this is an ideology that's influencing a lot of people. And so I do think that the alt-right, because it's not it's not like David Duke and it's not, you know, people like that who have an incredible amount of uh, baggage and who are not particularly like savvy about how the media works, or how the internet works, you know, the alt-right has been able to, uh, I wouldn't say go mainstream, but sort of edge closer to the mainstream. And because of that, I do think that it's definitely a legitimate, a legitimate topic for journalists to write about. And I think the journalists should be writing about it.
1: I was intrigued, Luke, by the sentence in your story. Um, to spend any significant amount of time in truth or forums is to feel the traps being set, the hooks sinking in. What if the mind wonders?" <laughs> What are the entry points into this? Like, what does it look like? What are the what are the posts? What's that post, the kind of, you know, the alt-right
2: starter guide? Well, if anyone truly is interested in experiencing this, I would recommend that you just hang out a little bit on 8chan. Uh, 4chan was – and to explain 8chan and 4chan, these are internet message boards, essentially image boards where – People will congregate and just go crazy on certain topics, and th- these long threads develop, and it's everybody is chiming in, you know, offering evidence for this position, that position, and I would say that that's a very good example of how you know this sort of truther environment functions. Um, so, if you do spend some time on there, even if you are a sane. Person, a well-educated person uh, with some some you know critical thinking ability. There is something seductive about it. There is something uh, seductive about these unexplained mysteries about how our society works, and asking these questions uh, in, under the pretense of seeking out the truth, as if some form of endless internet debate is going to surface the truth without actual facts and actual information but thousands of people do engage in this activity and so it really it can it can play with your head if you spend too much time in these things and you know you'll start wondering well wait maybe this conspiracy about this Jared Kushner connected company having something to do with the Golan Heights and the Syria missile strike that Trump ordered against Syria. Maybe there's actually something to it. And let's why don't we dig into the financial records of this company and find out every single person who's on the board of this company and do deep dives on their backgrounds. And people will spend hours and hours and hours and days doing this stuff. And you know, where does that lead? It leads to more of this kind of, you know, circular conspiratorial thinking, which I, in my mind, the way I imagine it is sort of a, either a rabbit hole or something kind of circling a drain, descending precipitously down to this depth where you find all kinds of far more toxic conspiracy theories, such as the, the Holocaust denial, for example. Right at the end of at the very bottom of the internet is Holocaust
3: denial, I think, but I'm sure there's a new bottom somewhere. (laughs) One of the questions I get, which is a legitimate question, is: Are we making too much of these people? We're putting uh, Andrew Anglin uh, on the cover of the Atlantic magazine, for instance. Uh, My question is: Does this movement top out? I mean, where do you think? How, how big does it get? And and by movement, I mean everything from so-called alt-righters, white nationalists, all the way to genuine neo-Nazis. But but is there a is there a natural limit on growth here? I mean, obviously, one would hope that there is. But but how far do you think this this moves through um, young white male America?
4: Well, first of all, we don't actually have a good you know sense of how big the movement is it's not really something where we can quantify you know every single person who they I...
3: claim lots of members obviously yeah but...
4: and but it's not something where we can quantify every single person that identifies as alt right and then say okay well that's this you know such such percentage of 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 the electorate or such and such percentage of Donald Trump supporters or anything like that but i do think that uh, it's obviously had a big impact culturally this movement and also politically i mean like look back at Charlottesville. I mean, that's when you saw this supposedly fringe movement kind of hit right against mainstream politics and suddenly become a mainstream political issue. Although the alt-right itself or the movement calling itself the alt-right is is relatively new, the term is relatively new. I mean, these, these sorts of ideologies that it draws upon are actually very old. So it's not as if it sort of is just happening now and then it might just wither away. It might become something else. There might be some new term that comes into fashion. Um, but, you know, as long as this is able to get spread around online, I, I don't really see it sort of going away entirely No,
1: Rosie, why do you think that this movement, at least this incarnation of it, is goes so hand in hand with misogyny?
4: I mean, could it be as basic as young men get rejected by girls and then just sort of Take it way too far. I mean, I you know I'm not trying to be flippant about it, but I do think that um, you know a lot of uh, the people who get interested in in the men's rights movement or the alt right are sort of you know younger misfit guys. And Luke made the point earlier about rejection and how rejection was a big part of Andrew Anglin's story.
2: I think uh, it's important to to recognize that the alt right is. A, just a new face of an old hate that's existed in this country since this country's founding. Yeah. And they do have new, a new language. They have figured out how to use the internet very effectively. And, and the question of how much can it grow and how much influence can it have, that is hard to quantify. It's impossible to quantify What you saw in Charlottesville was a tiny concentrated core of extreme white nationalists who are willing to go into the street, get doxxed, have their names out there, potentially lose their jobs, and engage in street violence. Now, I think that that is the tip of an ideological iceberg. Uh, There's a generation of angry young men who would never take those risks in the street, but are all too happy to sit online and self-radicalize and spew these really vile ideas. And, you know, these guys are able to, to, I guess, pass a little more easily in public as just regular citizens. But these are also kind of the astroturfy elements of the alt-right that are, are starting to mainstream it more. And you know Richard Spencer is, is never going to get a huge amount of traction in mainstream conservatism. It's just, he's just not. I mean, you had Buckley back in the day policing these boundaries, right? But extremist ideas, if we're going to call them that, or, or far-right extremism, that has always overlapped to some degree with mainstream conservatism. It's just a matter of image control, and, and that's who gets the access to the corridors of power. So um, I do think it is a concern. I'm of the same mind as as Rosie that you don't want to give these guys a platform for their views, but we're journalists and we have to hold them accountable for their views too through reporting. I think that is the way to cover them, to cover them critically uh, through more investigative type reporting than to just react to something crazy that Richard Spencer, Andrew Anglin says.
3: Yeah. You know, Luke, it's interesting you say that because uh, when we were discussing what to do with your story and how to feature it. Um, I noted that, uh, the Atlantic was covering Hitler's ideology and, uh, the 1930s. Uh, I'm not equating this moment to that moment, obviously, but I would say that, uh, before Hitler was taken seriously, he wasn't taken seriously. Um, but the Atlantic did take it seriously as a, as a thought system. And, uh, that that was one thing that weighed on us as we were thinking about uh, these questions.
2: Yeah, that's that's interesting.
3: We do indeed take these things seriously, and I, I encourage all of our listeners
1: to read Luke O'Brien's cover story in the December 2017 issue of the Atlantic. And now, let us turn from Nazis. <laughs> Let's
3: turn from Nazis. No, no, let's that's stay the, on Nazis. That's, that's, the, that's the name of our next podcast, by the way. Let let's us turn, turn from, from Nazis. Nazis. It's a fashion show. <laughs>
1: I'm going to ask you guys the question that I ask at the end of every episode of Radio Atlantic, um, which is, what would you like to keep? What is something that you have heard, watched, seen, experienced, listened to recently that you do not want to
3: forget? Jeff? Yeah, mine is easy. It's um, uh, a year ago this week, my friend Gwen Eiffel died, and mm. uh, I've been thinking about her all week and how much uh, our country could use a voice like hers right now. Yeah. Gwen Eiffel.
4: Well, I actually just recently watched the uh, Joan Didion documentary on Netflix. The part that really stuck in my mind was Uh, when she's asked about the famous scene in Slouching Toward Bethlehem where she meets the five-year-old girl who is tripping on acid. I had a two-year-old at the time I was working on that, so it was particularly vivid to me to see these other children. And she's asked, you know, what did you think when you saw that? What was your reaction?
1: What was it like to be a journalist in the room when you saw the little kid on acid?
4: And she goes, well... Let me tell you, it was gold. I mean, that's... The long and the short of it is
0: you, you, you live for, the, for, mom, for moments like that if you're, if, you're, if you're
3: doing a piece.
4: And that's something that's just been sort of like sticking in my mind and making me think a lot about sort of reportorial distance and, and those sorts of things.
3: Yeah. Wow.
1: Gwen Eiffel, Joan Didion.
2: <laughs> well, I'm also a sports guy, so I'm going to hold on to Lonzo Ball's triple-double the other night. Lonzo Ball, the uh, L.A. Lakers rookie point guard, been struggling, a lot of critics uh, coming at him, and he put up a very impressive triple-double the other night. So the young man shows promise. Indeed, one to remember. Mine
1: is, since we've been talking about the darker side of places like Reddit, I want to talk about one of the subreddits that um, I have over the past few years come to quite enjoy. It's a community of writers called no Sleep, a subreddit which uh, amateur horror story writers um, go to write fiction for each other. Um, It's a a fantastic community of writers. Some of the stories are quite strong. A podcast has grown out of it, the No Sleep Podcast, which is incredibly highly produced with multiple voice actors for every episode. There are, in addition to Nazis, Also, some delights on on Reddit. That brings us once again to the end of another Radio Atlantic. Rosie, Luke, thank you so much for joining us. Sure, thank you. Thank you. Jeff, great having you as always.
3: Thank you, Matt.
1: That'll do it for this week's Radio Atlantic. Thank you to Luke O'Brien and Rosie Gray for joining us. Thank you to my co-host, Jeffrey Goldberg. Alex Wagner will be back with us next week. This episode was produced and edited by Kevin Townsend and Diana Douglas with production support from Kim Lau. Check us out at facebook.com slash radioatlantic and theatlantic.com slash radio. Make sure you check out the show notes in the episode description, and if you like what you're hearing, rate and review us in Apple Podcasts and subscribe in your preferred podcast app. Don't forget to check out our newest show, The Atlantic Interview. The latest episode features a timely and illuminating conversation between Jeff and CNN's Jake Tapper. Thanks also to John Batiste for our legendary theme song, which, if you haven't heard, is now on Spotify. Check it out, The Battle Hymn of the Republic. Most importantly, thank you for listening. We'll see you next week.
0: This episode of Radio Atlantic is brought to you by Microsoft Copilot for Security completely integrated into your organization's security infrastructure. This AI companion is informed by 78 trillion signals daily to help you catch the threats others miss and reinforce your team's security posture efficiently. It synthesizes data from numerous sources and can analyze 500 lines of code in under a minute to put critical guidance at defenders' fingertips. It helps teams detect threats and take action in minutes instead of hours or days which can reduce attack investigation time by up to 40%. Copilot also serves as a key second pair of eyes, upskilling junior analysts with advanced capabilities, which frees up senior staff to focus on strategic priorities, all while safeguarding your data privacy. Learn more at microsoft.com slash copilot for security.